Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. Welcome, James Ashton, to the All Points West podcast. James is the Chief Executive of the Quoted Companies Alliance, the lobby group that champions the many thousands of small and medium-sized businesses that are listed on the main market in London and on AIM and Aquis. James stepped into this role in October 2022 after a 20-year career as a financial journalist, city editor, executive editor at the Evening Standard and Reuters, the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times. James is also an accomplished author and his third book, The Everything Blueprint, The Microchip Design That Changed the World, tells the story of ARM, the true British technology success story. He's also a non-executive director of the FTSE 250 Investment Trust, Finsbury Growth and Income, and chairs Oscars Book Prize, the annual search for the UK's best children's picture book. Welcome, James. This is a first for me, as it's the first time I've had to interview a friend. So full disclosure, James and I have worked together on a number of newspapers through our careers. So, James, let's get straight into it. If I could start by asking about your work at the QCA, you've recently updated the QCA's Corporate Governance Code for growing companies. It's the first time it's been updated in five years, I think it is. What are the key changes for small company directors and how do you see the governance landscape evolving over the next five or 10 years? We, we have spent a, uh, a, a lot of time at the QCA this year on um, updating the code. And sometimes people know the code before they know the organization. So the code itself is 10 years old. The organization's been giving advice on governance for most of our history, which is 30 odd years now. And we updated it this year, last done in 2018. We also totted up how many companies were following it. We reckon that just about 900 companies are following the code. So it's 93% of AIM, a good chunk of Aquis, and actually quite a lot of companies on the standard list as well, which surprised us. And I think the changes are there. I, I wish I had the head of policy sat next to me and he would give you chapter and verse. But a lot of the stuff is really around how companies relate to wider stakeholders. So there's a, a bit more acknowledgement there of ESG requirements. And then also a little bit more about relationships in the, the boardroom and independence and some of those roles. And, and we have to be really careful. We want to make sure it's relevant and that people still buy into it both in the companies but also in the investor community it's really it's really not got to move too far from being a 10 point plan pro growth and really flexible i mean that's the issue it's got to be something that people can look at can use it not use it but can can talk against it if you like Another issue for many businesses at the moment is that of economic growth and how that is impacting on company valuations and the competitiveness of the City of London. Now, you published your sentiment index recently in which respondents say it's never been harder to raise funds via public markets at any point during the 12 years the survey has been running. I think, in fact, for only the second time in its history, companies say that if they were to raise capital over the next year, they're more likely to do so via bank finance than tapping the public market. What, what's gone wrong, do you think? Well, you're right, Carl. I mean, it was, it, was, um, it was a pretty gloomy 
outlook. And the other stat in there, which has been quoted by a lot of people, is that all of the companies that we surveyed, almost one in four said that currently they didn't see the value in having a public quote, which was is a bit of a toast dropper, really, because that's the place they've chosen to be. So what's gone wrong? I mean, it's a question of how long have you got, really? I mean, there's a whole number of things, whether it's cultural, whether it's regulatory and so on, and kind of built up over a number of years. And that's why there's so much work going on with capital markets reform, trying to untangle that and make the UK markets fit for the future. In terms of the the, the fundraisings, I mean, I speak to member companies. It's a bit like driving with the brakes on, I think. So all of that work is not really being priced in by institutions. And then when the CEO thinks, oh, I, I know what levers I want to pull and where I want to expand next, they know that if they tap the shareholders for more money, um, then there's every chance that the shares will collapse. So having to row back on their growth plans. So I think uh, we need to look again at the, the cost-benefit analysis of maintaining the public quote. And we see companies that are leaving currently so that the message is loud and clear. But it's also about liquidity. It's about the volume of buyers and sellers and getting some of those back. And there's a lot of work to be done to see why some of those UK pension funds that were investing heavily in the market going back 10, 15, 20 years are really not there anymore. I mean, it's always the big headline grabbers that get lots of attention, but what's going on with SMEs in the market kind of flies under the radar a little bit, doesn't it? It does a bit, and we're trying to get it to fly over the radar. That's one of the things we have to do is make sure that the small and mid-caps um, you know, have the voice. I mean, there's a lot of stats about deep capital pools and liquidity and all those numbers. And I think one number that's really, really important to follow is the volume of companies. You only need 100 companies to fill the FTSE 100. But the great thing about the London market is we use words like ecosystem now. It's the big and it's the small. They're based all over the world. They're certainly based all over the UK. And, um, you know, it's something that does work when the chips are down. I mean, uh, think how much money was raised during COVID at a day or so's notice when companies needed it. They could tap the market, they could tap their investors. And I think there's lots of work to be done to make sure that this should be the place that companies go when they want to raise the funds and, and expand onto the next level. Now, I know that another of your bugbears is the size of so-called doorstopper annual reports. Why are they now so huge? I mean, what can we do to slim them down to a manageable size? I was reading the average annual report now has more words than Orwell's 1984, and they've grown in size by 46% in the past five years to about 173 pages. So that's about, yeah, 6,000 words a year going on to the average annual report. And so even on AIM, those annual reports are coming in at about 44,000 words, which is, in, in literary terms, the witch in the wardrobe. And so why? I think there's been successive layers of um, disclosures that companies have been asked to give more on. And actually, the growth has been less in the the numbers in the financial disclosures, but it's really more the non-financial. It's all the text. So for the avoidance of doubt, if, if a company says, what do we do about this disclosure, about this information? And the auditor says, well, keep it in and add some more and so on and so on. Th there's no one that is saying, leave this out. And so we thought that piece of work was quite useful to highlight where annual reports are currently. And the issue, I think, is what they are, but it was also to symbolize a lot of the cost and complexity that companies face. And you've got to question, particularly with those smaller companies, if it's not just 
the time spent doing the annual report. What else might they be doing if they weren't filling out the annual report? And the answer is they'd probably be growing the business. And actually, there's a review at the moment of non-financial reporting. So a lot of ideas kicking around about what you can cut, how you could make it easier. Because the odd thing is, there's something quite archaic about a once a year report when all of these companies are drowning in real-time data. And we know people don't read them cover to cover, but they are used as quite a useful reference point and, and part of building up that trust that the investors need to, to buy the shares in a company they might not otherwise have heard of. I was going to say, it places huge burden on smaller companies. What's the sort of feedback that you're getting from members? What are they saying about it? Annual reports in particular? Yeah. It's a job that starts earlier and earlier every year, um, but it also is the... Um, it is the question of what else could we be doing with the time? Yeah. And and there are some fantastic annual reports, and there's a lot of companies that put time and effort into sustainability reports and community reports and so on. And too often, if the company's talking to their investors who might be asking questions about ESG, they'll still be asked to fill in a long multi-choice questionnaire or something because the investors themselves will not delve into the report they've produced. Yeah, yeah. Um James, you've had a few different careers. We touched on it a little bit. Could I move you on to your book writing? Your third book, The Everything Blueprint, the microchip design that changed the world is about ARM. Give us a brief synopsis and tell us why you decided to focus on ARM. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I mean, I've done, done a couple before and I've done some books written with people, like co-written, ghost-written, and I've done another one of my own. And so I was just looking around for what, what next. And I was looking for a great big... UK corporate story that I didn't think had been properly told. And mm. it says a lot about the UK that that is a short list. And I'd known ARM yeah. and written about them at a few papers, including Sunday Times. And I knew parts of the story, but I hadn't seen it all stitched together. So Cambridge-based chip designer set up in, in 1990 from the ashes of Acorn Computer as a joint venture with Apple. And I just thought there was the the story about how that had grown to become so big. It doesn't make anything. It, it licenses designs for chips, particularly chips, the CPUs, which are kind of the brains of the outfit. They control the device that they're embedded in. And the title, The Everything Blueprint, comes from the fact that they are ubiquitous now. These designs are licensed 1,000 times per second, um, 30 billion times a year. And it's astonishing volumes. And... I wanted to look at how it got there. And it's had some incredible relationships. But also the real breakthrough was in 1997 when its designs were used in the first mass market Nokia. And the fact that these designs were, were low cost and they were low power meant that you no longer needed a, a, a rucksack to carry your battery around with you. You actually had a proper portable mobile. And in those late 90s, the ARM design went everywhere. And then a decade later, it jumped into the smartphone era with the iPhone and on from there. So it's a very complicated industry. And what I tried to do as well is as I was pulling together the ideas, we were in lockdown and suddenly semiconductors were front page news because there weren't enough of them being made. And suddenly everyone from the consumer looking to buy the latest gadget to senior politicians realized that the supply of semiconductors was hugely important to the world going round. So that's why we've got tension between US and China and, and so on ever since. How much cooperation did you get from senior management at ARM in the writing of the book? Um, yeah, quite a bit. I mean, the 
The benefit is when the company has got a history, but is not ancient. So there's only been four CEOs of Arm in 33 years. And I had time with all of them. And as you will know from these sorts of projects, Carl, you can do pretty well without any help whatsoever. But um, they were persuaded it was good to talk. I mean, there was slight concern because the company has been owned by SoftBank, the Japanese investor, since 2016. And for a long time, it's been looking to sell or, or IPO. And as you've said already, they didn't choose to come back to London where they'd been for 18 years. They IPO'd in NASDAQ in September. So there was some things they couldn't say or do, but the, the help wasn't bad. Now, I know you've been on a whirlwind promotional round to promote the book. Have you got pressure from the publisher to dig out your laptop and, and crack on with the fourth? Still in therapy from number three. It's... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I would say, look, um, I've had a conversation about something else, but as I've said, I have some, an energy to help with the books and I have reminded him I've got a full-time job. I don't think that's landed with him yet, but it's such a different thing from the longish articles we might have written at the Sunday Times, say two and a half thousand words or something, to jumping up to something like 80,000 or 90,000. It, it's quite heavy going. So if there's nothing more f- from me in that vein for, for a while, then I'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge time commitment, I'm guessing. I mean, the insights and the interviews, the reporting that you must have to do to deliver on a project like that must be huge. I think the problem, I think, I think that's, that's the thing. And, and from doing a few, first of all, you think, well, what do I need to do to get this overline to get the length? Because you need to get to a certain depth into the story. So there's one thing about getting it over the line and making it good enough. But actually, with this one in particular, I could see you, you need to go the extra several miles to get the insight, the detail, and the polish. I mean, I, I listened to a lot of uh, podcasts by writers. So I think it was William Dalrymple who does these wonderful you know, historic books. And he said, it's not about the writing, it's about the rewriting. And he's right. And... It just takes so much time then to make not only a chapter hang together, but to really polish it up. Another of your book-related roles is that you chair the annual Oscars Book Prize, which you run with your wife, Viv, and which you named after your son, Oscar, who you tragically lost when he was a young boy. I have to say, it's a fantastic tribute by you both to him. Tell us about the prize, who judges it, and how has that evolved since you started it? Yeah, um, well, I mean, yeah, we 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 wondered what to do after losing Oscar, and and this it's it's strange having done it now for going into eleven years, and it felt a very very natural thing to do in year one because uh, we loved sharing picture books with him, and it felt like a, a you know great legacy. And then you do it for year one, and there's a um, you know wonderful outpouring of support, and then there's a lot of hard work to try to keep it going year after year. So. Two things that we do, and we do one of them really well, and there's one more we need to work harder on. And the, the first one is we want to choose and highlight the best picture book uh, published in the UK every year. So I say to anyone who hasn't got young kids, think about the Gruffalo. It's those um, sorts of books. And we get more than 100 entries every year. We have all sorts of judges that have helped us over the years. So over the years, people like Axel Scheffler, whose illustrations made the Gruffalo. Lauren Child um, was, a, was a great judge for us. And then we tried to have some celebrity input as well. So Dermot O'Leary, Lorraine Kelly, Sophie Ellis-Bexter have, have helped us over the years. And yeah, I, I say, look, we need to just grow and grow and grow this and, and raise the profile. I want to be the man booker of picture books. And we're always going to be 47 yeah. years behind the man booker. But um, you know, publishers love it. 
we really want to showcase the authors and the illustrators. Quite often, these books are joint ventures. And then the other bit which we need to try and do more on is how can we, in our own little way, excite kids to pick up books and to share them with their parents. It's really about the parents saying, I know I'm tired, but you know, you can't go to bed without 10 minutes of, um, of reading. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a fine thing that you're doing and I'm sure it will resonate with all the mums and dads out there that are listening. I just want to put aside your work life for a moment, James, and just delve into your background a little bit. Could you just tell us where you grew up? What did your mum and dad do? Have you got siblings and how did those formative years shape you? Well, yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I'm from uh, Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. My dad worked in local government, and in the second half of his career, he um, there's a, there's a great uh, tradition of open markets in the north, and he managed a number of those. Mum did clerical secretarial stuff and didn't really work while me and my brother were growing up, and he's four years younger than me, and so are now off in exotic parts of the world. He's in Dubai. And the thing that I spent most of my life doing is writing news articles and stories and so on. And I suppose there are two things that really got me into that um, when I was growing up. The first one was a brilliant competition that our local paper, the Huddersfield Daily Examiner, it is still daily and it's a great town newspaper. Although my dad would say it's not what it was because he says that about a lot of things. And and what they used to do, (laughs) (laughs) what they used to do was have a junior journalist competition. So this was a great space filler. They used to print a blank tabloid version of the paper once a year. And they would say to school groups or to individuals, um, just fill it fill it with stories from your community, write them, type them up, paste them in, put in some pictures. And I thought that was a great license to be nosy around um, the neighborhood and sort of ask questions and listen to the answers and so on. So that was something I, I did, which I really enjoyed. And then I suppose linked to that, I did something for a couple of years, probably, yeah, GCSE into A-level. I worked at the local hospital radio, which for your younger listeners is exactly what it sounds like. It's an audio service based in the local hospital for the local hospital. In the times before, everyone was carrying around five electronic devices that they could have Spotify on or something. That was a great experience, not not just for playing DJs, there was that, but actually, I think if you wanted to know your audience, then you could just walk down the corridor and find them on Ward 7. I mean, it's fascinating. I had no idea that you were so into journalism from such a, a young age. What, what were you like at school? I don't, um, I mean, I was probably a bit swatty. Was it English that you sort of gravitated to or were you quite good at sciences and stuff as well? Uh, yeah, it was lots of English, although oddly I did A-level chemistry, which obviously was a interesting choice at the time, but it comes in handy when you're trying to understand microchips. Yeah, indeed, yeah. So from A-levels then, did you go straight to uni or did you travel for a bit? I know you went to St. Andrews, didn't you? Yeah, I went straight. I went straight to St Andrews, and and it was a a um, you know I think it was the furthest university I looked at from home, but it just seemed like a, an amazing place. And and anyone's been there. I mean, it's, I, I went back recently, and it is clearly a lot bigger than it used to be. But that kind of enclosed community on the edge of Fife, where it's, it seems to be, I seem to remember it was windy for the whole of the four years. Um, is is just a, is just a great place to be. And actually, I might have done a bit more radio there, but there wasn't a radio station, so I gravitated back to the uh, student paper. Did you go straight into journalism, or was there a gap? Did you do other jobs first, or how did, how did you how did you progress there? No, no, um, I, I came down to. Um, I did the postgrad in newspaper journalism at City University, which is is a one year course. It's quite 
an intensive course to get the skills, you know, the classes in legal, uh, 9 a.m. shorthand. And actually, it was, I think, a course like that, and there's an equivalent in Cardiff, or there certainly used to be those with the, with the main two to look at, I think. And um, I think it's not just what you learn, but it's the connectivity of, of the course. I mean, so many publications or Newswise or whatever knew if they were looking for a young and keen graduate, they would ring up City or Cardiff and see who was about to come off the course. That helped. That was helpful in getting my first job, actually. What attracted you into journalism? What were, what were the sorts of things that you enjoyed most about it? Um, I think it's that license to ask anything. There's something about that opportunity to be, um, you know, you're satisfying your curiosity. And if you're doing the job properly, you're satisfying your audience, your reader's curiosity. I mean, I it's odd because I've done so much business journalism, but I didn't... Um, I didn't really do that until I'd left City. I mean, actually, I did an arts specialism at, at City, and I did a lot of arts reviews and so on. But I think, um, mm. I think with business, um, always interested in who's in charge, where have they come from, what makes them tick, what type of leader are they, all, all that stuff. Yeah. How much of the transferable skills that you learnt and honed in your career as a journalist do you think you still use and, and, and have transferred successfully now to your role at the QCA? Well, people say you're still writing much and I feel like I'm writing more than ever. Um, but I think in terms of transferable skills, I think there's some lines you can draw between a readership and a, and a membership. So we have um, just about 300 organisations that are members of, of the QCA. We've got a lot of the, the corporates, um, mid-cap, small-cap companies, and then also we've got about a third are the advisors, including investors, so everyone else in the support network, the brokers, the lawyers, and the accountants, and, and so on. And to a lesser degree, you know, we have to lead them and lead into those conversations with government departments and regulators. But the far bigger part of the job is to make sure that we're listening to them and reflecting their concerns to those people that can make a difference. So I think in a way, it's a bit like, I think you have to know your audience in newspapers. And I remember it was, um, uh, I can say this because you, you go back there too, but we used to get readers' letters there and you have to reply to every communication you get from a reader. So I think there's something about that responsiveness that hopefully is a useful learning for the QCA. And then I think actually a, a members group like ours, we have to tell stories really well. We have to explain to through the media and to politicians and regulators why what our members do matters, what they're doing for the economy, what they're doing for jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And then linked to that, well, we've got a talk about what we do. We've got to explain to people what the QCA is and what happens under the bonnet. So I hope all that's transferable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So finally, as we're about to wrap up, James, if you don't mind, what do you like to do outside work to relax? What sort of hobbies have you got? Oh, uh, I mean, th th I think that's a work in progress for 2024 is find a hobby. I was going to say, do you have any time? Yeah, well, work? I mean, Carl, look, you know, that that's the problem with, um, you can kind of put the day job away a little bit. Uh, I mean, with a book, you can't really ever put that away at, at certain stages. So um, I've got a paddleboard. I love doing that. Um, we're not yeah. far from the sea and um, and I do a boot camp. I mean, it doesn't sound like like relaxation, but anything that blocks the day job out of your brain, I think is a helpful thing. James Ashton, it's been great to chat. So much I already knew, but lots that I didn't. Thank you for joining me on the All Points West podcast. Good luck with your work for the QCA. 
the book writing and everything else you're involved with. Thanks so much, Carl. It's great to talk to you. Cheers, James.